Okay, we're going to, this morning we're going to be reading from Hebrews 8, uh, and it's on page 4 and 5 in the leaflets. Okay. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he has, is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will, be, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will, be, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and ageing will soon disappear. Please take your seats. Good morning. Welcome. Good to see you. Thanks to Dave for leading us helpfully and to the musicians who serve you a lot better than I could. Um, that's a kind of a backhanded compliment. Um, you ask your friends, if you go into the Ashley Centre or somewhere else locally, you ask your friends in the workplace, and it won't be long if you say, hey, well, what are some of the reasons that you're not a Christian? If you were to ask a question like that, or what are some of the big objections that other people have to Christianity or to religion as a whole? Uh, I wonder what response you'd get. I'm sure pretty soon someone would say, well, one of the problems with Christianity and religion as a whole, broad brushstroke, one of the problems with Christianity and religion as a whole is that it is a significant cause of war and hatred in the world. Yep. At some point, someone would say, the reason there is so much strife in the world, the reason there are so many uh, wars in the world and in the history of the world is purely to be laid at the floor of religion. Religion causes that. I was reading the newspaper on uh, Thursday, and there's an interesting photo that's come up many times in recent uh, months and, uh, of Sally Jones. Sally Jones uh, is known as the White Widow. She left Kent, she used to be a pop star, a rock star. She left uh, sunny Kent and she went to Syria, where she was radicalised into following and becoming a member of ISIS. She then uh, became one of the most successful recruiters to bring vulnerable young women and men from Europe to Syria to be engaged in uh, modern warfare against the West. And she would tweet David Cameron, who said, I'm going to track her down. I'm going to get her. Um, and she responded with saying, laugh out loud. You don't know where I am. That's lol. 
for anyone who's younger than me. And uh, it's just some more fuel to the fire that says, see, here's an example of someone who professes to be a Muslim, someone who says that they are on the fanatical side of Islam. But here's another reason why we can say there's fuel to the fire, there's evidence to say one of the main causes of religion, one of the main things that it produces is warfare, is hatred. And you might think, well, hang on, that's not fair. I think there is some truth, that actually, that when you look at religions around the world, throughout the history of the world, religion has done some tremendous evils. There's been some tremendous damage that's been caused in the name of Christianity, uh, in Islam, and in other major world religions. But then you look at Hebrews chapter 8. And in Hebrews chapter 8, you say at least a couple of things, but one of the main things is, Jesus has come not to bring a better religion, not religion 2.0. Jesus has come not to say, out with the old, in with the new per se. He's come to say no to religion, not a better religion. He's come to say, I've come to end religion altogether. I've come to bring in something so new, so radically different, that if you grasp it and see it, wars will end. Strife will come to an end. Hatred will stop. I've come in to end religion, not bring in a better one. And not just that, I've come in to bring a new relationship, a new covenant. It's that word appears a number of times in chapter 8. So let's look at these two things. If religion in the history of the world has caused so much strife and hatred and warfare, one of the things, one of the main things that Jesus does when he came to the earth 2,000 years ago, and one of the things he can do right now even today, is to end religion in our hearts and to bring us into a new covenant relationship with the God who loves us and who made us. Let's look at the first thing. Jesus has come to end all religion. Jesus has come to end all religion. Verses 1 and 2, sentence 1 and 2 of chapter 8. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by men. If you were a Jewish Christian, if you had background in Jewish Christianity, which the original readers would have, you would be struck by a couple of things that, that can go through our eyes and ears as we read these two sentences at the start of this passage. They would be struck by these two things, that the priesthood of Jesus that we were looking at last week is completely different from any other human priesthood. Because two things strike us. Verse 1, this priest that Jesus is described as our great high priest, this priest, where is he sat? Verse 1, at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that would never happen. Because in the Bible, to be sat at the right hand is the position of authority. If you're sat at the right hand of a king or a ruler, let alone God and God alone, you would be someone who is a co-regent someone who has equal authority and sway, someone who has equal power as the regent, as the ruler, as the king. That's the first surprise. And then the second surprise, and I've had some stick for this this, this week, just as oil and balsamic vinegar do not mix unless you mix them. I asked my life group about this. But they don't mix unless you mix them. You will never see a priest act like a king and a king act like a priest. It will not happen. And here in this sentence it's saying... You will never see a ruler who is a priest or a priest who is a ruler with one exception who's Melchizedek, this strange shadowy figure we looked at last week from Genesis chapter 14, the first book of the Bible and in Hebrews 7 as well. They never mix, just like oil and balsamic vinegar, unless you mix them. 
But here's the second thing, not just this right-hand language. Look at what it says in verse 1 and 2 again. He's not just a priest. He's not just serving. He's not just ministering as a priest would. He sat down. He's seated. Now that is hugely significant. He's not just this priestly king. He's not just got authority at the right hand. He sat down. Now no one who ministers, no one who works just like a mum, they never sit down unless all the kids are in bed and so on. Just like a hard-working foreman in the office or a midwife or a, a matron in a hospital setting, they never sit down. They're always working. And here it says, this person who is Jesus, who's at the right hand of God, he's seated. And there's two big surprises if you're familiar with Jewish uh, way of doing things. If you want to get the magnitude of what is being said here, let me just come back to this theme that we started with of religion, of religion. I want us to think a bit about religion. Just have in mind one or two of the major world religions in your mind's eye. And there are two uh, significant components that almost all world religions agree with. First of all, there is a transcendent deity. There is a God. They differ in what he or she looks like, but there is a God who rules over all things. You cannot see them. They may believe that they created the world, but there is a superior being, a transcendent God, who rules over all. A transcendent power, an ultimate reality. That's the first thing that they would agree on. Then there's a second thing that all major world religions agree on. There is a gap between this transcendent deity, the ultimate reality, and ourselves. We have a gap between us and them. We are not like them, whoever they may be. We need to do something. There needs to be someone to mediate the gap. All major world religions agree on those two principles, but then they begin to disagree when you say, okay, how do we bridge the gap? Some world religions will say, you need to work hard. You need to be good enough. You need to be kind enough. You need to give enough. You need to do the right things. You need to accrue credit, and then God will please with you. In other words, you cross the gap yourself. Major world religions agree on that tenement. Some others, though, say, well, the ultimate reality, God is not out there. Actually, he's in here. God exists in each one of us. God wasn't just made one of us. He actually exists in our hearts. And even if that is true, in an Eastern religion, predominantly, who believes in that, they would recognise that there is a disparity between the God who is in our hearts and also our own behaviour. There's still a gap, even if it's internal, is what I'm trying to say. You've got to overcome it in some way. But then along comes Christianity and along comes Jesus in verse 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 8, and he says this. I'm completely different. I've come with a 2,000-year-old bazooka to blow away religion. I've come to end religion, not just bring in a better one. I'm not just a significant teacher who tells you the way to the ultimate reality. I am the ultimate reality. I am God himself walking the earth. In verse 1 and 2, we have Jesus who's presented in these two ways, balsamic vinegar and oil, please don't forget. He's the king, but he's also the priest together. He's like Melchizedek from chapter 7, but he's greater. So the king in the Old Testament, he would have been like God. The king represents God to the people. But he's also like a priest who represents the people to God. Those two things are flipped. And this is what the Bible says. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality. Back in Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, it says this, Jesus, who made the universe, he created it by word of his power. 
He is not the reflection. He is the radiance of God's glory. When you see Jesus, you see God's purity, his holiness, his might and his majesty. He sustains all things by his word of power. The world exists because Jesus still lives and intercedes for us. He's the king. But he's also the priest who came to offer up his life. Now, no one has ever said this before. And that's why it's a bazooka for religion. Not a better religion, not a different religion. It's the end of religion when it comes to Jesus. I am the ultimate reality. I am God himself. He agrees with all world religions. There is an ultimate reality. But then he differs because Jesus says, I am he. And there is no one else. But then from verses 1 and 2, not only is Jesus the king, remember he's also the priest. Not only am I the king who rules, I'm also the priest who intercedes. I'm the bridge. I'm not just over the other side of the gap or the canyon. I'm the one who lays down his life so that you can know the ultimate reality. You'll never find him by yourself. So I'll offer up my life so that you don't have to make the journey. I will. I'll come down the stairs. I'll come into your world. What if God was one of us? Well, he was. And he came to seek and to save the lost. And that's the reason, verse 2, and into verse 1, rather, it says, Jesus Christ is seated. Why? Because his work is done. It's the end of religion. And it's the beginning of a covenant relationship. Just like the bake-off. We have very addictive tendencies in our household and in our hearts. Recently, uh, Netflix has been quite poor for us, so we've discovered the Great British Bake Off. We always get to things very late. We started in uh, 2004, I think is when it began, and we journeyed through. We've got through uh, up to season five, I think now. The new one apparently is not so good, but you may enjoy it. One of the things I've learned about the Bake Off is very little about cooking, but what I've observed is this. People are amazingly creative. Things are, people are very, very artistic, but they're also not very good at managing time. There's one lady in one of the seasons, I don't know who, uh, I can't remember her name, but everyone else was sweating frantically as they made some creation, some concoction. And there was this lady who had loads of time to spare. She had done the hard work of kneading, preparing and pounding. She had done the hard work of creating and thinking. She'd done it all and it was just there in the oven and she sat down. Everyone else is working their socks off, swearing. There's a bit of chaos. There's the thing taken out of the freezer that shouldn't have been taken out and all that stuff. But there's this one lady who was there at the front who literally was saying, have I done everything? Because I can sit down. The work is done. Now that's the image of verse 1. Jesus is the king who rules. He's the ultimate reality. He spoke and flung stars into space and keeps them there by word of his power. But he's also the priest. And because he came and laid down his life, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He's the king, but he's also the priest. But then there's a change. And let's look very closely at verses 8 and following now. Jesus has come to end all religion. How? Because he's the king, but he's also the priest. He's made a way so that we can know God personally. Now, what will that look like? Christianity does not bring you to another religion. It brings you into a covenant relationship with God. A covenant relationship with God. This is what this passage is mainly about. It's how God relates to his people. Point number two, this radical new covenant relationship with God. What do I mean? Do you notice this word came up three times? Covenant. Covenant. Look at verse 8. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. 
I'm going to do something new. Verse 9, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. Verse 10, see the word covenant again. Look at what happens, how God changes how he deals with his people. Verse 9, they sinned, it's talking about the Israelites in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. They sinned, so I turned my face away from them. God changed how he dealt with his people. Down to verse 12, sentence 12 please. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Did you notice the change between verse 9 and verse 12? In the old way of dealing with things, God sees the sin of his people, verse 9, and he turns his face away from them. In verse 12, in the new covenant, in the new way of relating to his people, God sees his people, but he turns his face away from their sin, not from them. He even turns his memory away from their sin. See the difference? It's a huge new way that God deals with his people. In the old way, he sees the people's sin and he turns his face away from them. Verse 9, verse 12. In the new covenant, God sees us, he sees his people, and he turns his face away from their sin, not from the people. Now, how is that possible? Has God changed? No. But try and key into this. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it basically was a conditional relationship. Will someone turn that feeding down, please? (laughs) Whoever child that is. That's sucking. It's quite a suck. In the old way of dealing with things, it's mine. In the old way of dealing with things, it was conditional. God would say, here's how I want you to live. And if you live in this way, this is the way of blessing. But in a new way, There is a covenantal relationship, and it's a a way of boundaries, but there's a way of intimacy that wasn't there before. What do I mean? God is saying, I'm going to relate to you in a completely new way. Now, I want you to think how you deal with your friends. Very easy, it is relatively common for us to deal with our spouses and to deal with our friends, to deal with our parents, to deal with everybody in this conditional way. Listen carefully. It's very easy for us to deal with our friends in this way by saying, I will love you, I will honour you, I will respect you as long as you relate to me the way I want and the way I deserve. When you treat me the way I deserve, I will treat you the way you deserve. Get it? It's a quid pro quo way of relating with people. It's a conditional way of relating to our friends and our work colleagues and our spouses. I will honour you, I will love you, I will lay down my life for you when you treat me as I deserve. But God doesn't relate to us in that way. That's the old covenant. In the new covenant, God says this. Even if you sin, even if you rebel, I will never turn my face away from you. I will only turn my face away from your sins. Now, how could that happen? Because Jesus no longer, God no longer operates in a conditional relationship. It's completely unconditional. I will love you, says God. I will pursue you. I will bless you. I will shower my blessings upon you, whether you honour me or not. Now, how is that possible? That sounds too good to be true. How does God say, whether you put my needs first or not, as if God had needs, whether you put my honour first, and God does have honour, 
How is that possible for God to relate to us in a new way? How is it possible? It's possible because on the cross, the unconditional love of God was showered upon a world that doesn't deserve it and hasn't earned it. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ took the punishment of the conditional relationship so that we can know unconditional love. On the cross, Jesus knew the breaking of a relationship so that we can know a well, an unconditional relationship because he breaks none of the conditions and he keeps every single jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. On the cross, Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you what love really is. And even if you are not faithful to me, I will be faithful to you because you can never be faithful to me. And so I will be faithful to you. You will never pursue me so I will pursue you. You will never be able to love me, so I will shower my love and blessings upon you. On the cross, God the Father turns away his face upon his Son. He pours out this judgment and wrath upon his Son. And so because of his forsakenness, Jesus will never forsake us. He stood in our place as the priest, offering the perfect sacrifice he kept the covenant in full. And so he knows, verse 9, the covenant curse of the old covenant. Because of his perfect obedience, he kept every jot and tittle of the law. He's the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true sacrificial lamb. He's the great high priest. He can go into God's presence where we never will be able to because his perfect life. He got the covenant curse so that we can get the covenant uh, blessing. Conditionally? No. Unconditionally. How? Because he fulfilled every condition of the law. But how do you know if you're part of this unconditional love? How do you know if you're part of this new covenant relationship? How do you know if you're operating in your relationship to God as a religious person was? Or how do you know if you're part of this new covenant community? three signs from this passage that we're no longer related to God. If we're a Christian here this morning in the default mode of the human heart, which is religion, how do you know that you're not related to God in a religious way? Three signs of the new covenant. I wonder if you can see them in your life. Number one, intimacy. Intimacy. Verse 11. They will all know me. God is going to act in a way, and he has done, through his Son and by his Spirit, so that every single person who is a Christian, knows God personally. They will all know me. If you operate in a religious mindset and in a religious way, it's a week-by-week week covenant. Have you had a good week? Have you prayed enough? Have you been to the right places enough? Have you read enough? Have you done enough good? There's no assurance. It's all works. It's a week-by-week week renewable contract. A bit like a SIM card. I've got a new SIM card this week. It's a bit like a SIM card. You know, it's a it's a month-by-month -month agreement. It's a week-by-week -week agreement with God. It's like a new religious SIM card that you plug into your heart and you see if you're good enough and you see if you meet the stipulations of the contract. But here it says, verse 11, one of the signs of the new covenant, one of the signs of a new relationship with God that is unconditional because Jesus fulfilled every conditional requirement of the law is that no longer do you know about me no longer do you have any anxiousness when you come to me. You know me. Verse 11. You don't just know about me, you know me personally. One of the checks and balances you can do to see if you know God in this covenant relationship is if, to, is if you know anything of this. 
Do you know any intimacy with the maker of heaven and earth? Do you know him personally? When you pray to God, do you know something of the intimacy of this relationship? Or is God just an abstract concept to you? Is he just a transcendent deity, but there's nothing about the personal relationality that you can know? Have you ever read the Bible and something happens by God's Spirit, so this truth goes from being abstract to being real? It goes from being uh, something on a library bookshelf to being nuclear in your heart, and you begin to see how things have got to change in your life. Has that ever happened to you? If it has... It's one of the signs that no longer are you operating to God in a religious way, you're operating in a different, in a new covenant way, in a personal way. It's a personal encounter. It's a personal dealing with God. You don't just believe in him, you know him. Do you know something of that? If you do, it's one of the marks of being in a new covenant relationship with God. You know, you know his unconditional love for you. And that's beginning to change your heart. It's the first sign of a new covenant relationship is intimacy, verse 11. There's a second thing in verse 11 as well. It's, it's not intimacy, it's a quality. It's a quality, verse 11. They will all know me, and then it says, from the least of them, from the lowest, to the greatest. From the least of them to the greatest. If you were still operating in the Old Testament way of doing things, when you wanted to go into God's presence, into the tabernacle, the portable tent of meeting, if you wanted to go in the time of David and Solomon and so on into, into the temple of God, then there would be loads of barriers that you'd have to go through. A bit like kind of homeland security, but worse. So if you were a woman, you could go so far. If you were a man, you could go so far. If you were a Gentile, you could go so far. If you were a Jew, you could only go so far. And only once, as we looked last week, if you were the great high priest, could you go right into God's presence because of all these barriers, because of all these blocks. That's how religion operates. There are barriers, there are blocks that you can only go through if you pass certain criteria. If you believe in religion, it means that you are thinking that by your own efforts you can bridge the gap between God and yourself. And it's seen in a number of ways. This religious way of dealing not just with God but with other people as well. If you're a hard-working person and you have that religious spirit that is not something with equality, you have to look down on people who are slacking. If you are someone that has a liberal outlook on the world, then aren't those conservatives so bigoted? You have to look condescendingly on those who are conservatives because you think liberalism is the way to go. And you can flip it the other way as well. But what about if you are someone who is religious and you look down on someone who is full of grace? That's not the way you operate. You're so lax. What if you're someone who's full of grace and you look down upon those who are religious? You see, you just need a bit more boundaries in your life. Religion always leads to conflict. Because verse 11 doesn't marry up to religion. In a covenant relationship, you see everybody on one equal footing. There's no superiority. There's no exclusion. There's no oppression of the slippery slope of religion. Because in a covenant relationship, you're saved by grace, as Israel were. You're loved and you're affirmed because you understand that everybody is equally lost but is equally loved. If you see that, you begin to understand in your relationships something not just of intimacy that you can have with God, the maker of heaven and earth, 
but you also know equality when you look around at your peers and at your friends. Which brings me on to the third point. Not just uh, intimacy with God, not just equality with other people. We're equally broken, we're equally in need of a saviour. And we're equally experiencing grace. And that brings us on to community. Intimacy, equality. Thirdly, community. Look at verse 10. God says, I will put my law in their minds and I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my persons. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that I will put my law in their heart, I will be their God and they will be my individuals. It doesn't say that either. This is hugely important. God says, when you experience my salvation, when my spirit comes into your heart, no longer do you see yourself as just an individual in a Western mindset. You understand that you're part of a new people. You're part of a new community. It's intimacy with me. It's equality looking horizontally. But now there's a new ownership. God has created a new people. Remember back in verse 1 and 2 where we see that God is, uh, Jesus is king, but he's also a priest. Right back in the beginning of the Bible when we're told how God made the world, Something very interesting happens that's flipped here. God made the world and then he populated it with people. But now under the new covenant, God does things the other way around. He creates a new people that is a signpost for what he will yet do in the new creation that he's making, not through a word again, but through redemption. He's, he's making and ransoming a new people that will live in a new community, in a new reality, in a new heavens and earth. And if you're part of that people... It's a, a receipt, it's a down payment, it's a deposit of what will yet be a new creation with no more tears, with no more lost loved ones, with no more empty chairs of people that you would rather sit beside but who are no longer with us. No longer any suffering. It's part of a, a new humanity that will populate the new creation. And that means you've got to get on with the people that you're sat next to now. I couldn't find it this week, but last week I was reading something from Babylon B. He is a Christian satirist. He's absolutely hilarious. And he described this poor American couple. Well, it had to be American. Anyone American here? Um, it had this poor American couple who couldn't find the church they wanted. And so they travelled further and further from their home. You'll be glad to hear, the satirist reported, that they've just found the church of their dreams and it's only 700 miles away from where they live. They set off on Saturday night but this place is the business. It has the best music. It has the finest coffee. It has uh, palatial parking. It has a courier service so you can get from your car to the front door. The services aren't too short. They're not too long either. It's everything you want in a church. There's even a fitness suite, I think, as part of the church facilities. They found the church only 700 miles away that meets all their felt needs because church is about meeting my needs. Right? Wrong. God is saying in verse 10, one of the signs of a new covenant community is that there'll be a sign of togetherness. And just as God has showered his unconditional love upon us, in the same way when you see that there is a quality with the people around us, that we're all in need of grace, that will change how you have coffee with someone, that will change how you tolerate someone who's out of tune next to you, that will change how you put up with people in life group when things are hard. You can say to the person next to you, I'm going to be faithful to you, I'm going to love you, 
I'm not going to tolerate you. I'm going to love you in the biblical definition of love. I'm going to be able to say hard things to you. And I'm going to be able to hear hard things from you. I'm going to be able to do that even if you aren't being everything that I want you to be. Because God has showered his unconditional love upon me. So I'm going to love you and be to you all that I think I should be under God. Even if you're not being back to me what I think you should be. You can say something like, this church is relatively flawed. All these brothers and sisters around me have got a lot of baggage. But I'm going to be true to them, even if they're not true to me. I'm going to lay down my life for people on Sundays, on Tuesdays, throughout the week, and it's going to be costly, it's going to be painful, I'm going to be misunderstood, I'm going to be hurt. But I'm going to do it, because I know intimacy with God who loved me. I know equality with the people around me who are all in need of grace. And that means I will not travel 700 miles to find a church that fulfills my needs. I'm going to be part of this church family right here, or another church family locally that loves Jesus and who preaches the Bible. I'm going to be committed to them, even if they're not committed to me, because God came and sought me out. Friends, if you do this, you will begin to see that God is not remote. He's not far away. And that's a wonderful invitation to know him if you don't know him already. But it's also rather frightening. C.S. Lewis put it something like this, as only he can. An impersonal God, well that's well and good, a subjective God of beauty, truth, goodness. A God who's inside my head, well that's even better. A formless life force surging through all of us, vast, divine power, which we can all tap into, that's wonderful. But, a living God, a personal God, who's approaching us at infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the lover. Well, that's quite another thing. When you begin to encounter the God of the Bible, when he begins to encounter you, there comes a moment when you need to stop dabbling with Christianity and you need to think, what if I find him? What would change? But then there's something even more shocking. What if he found me? What would need to change then? A God who's not far away, a God who's close, a God who's personal. You have to relate to a God like that. You have to make a decision how you will relate to him. But if there is a God who's this personal that the Bible says there is, wouldn't you want to relate to him personally, intimately, equally? Wouldn't you want to be part of a church family that would love you and know you? I pray that you would. Let's pray together. Father, around your world this morning, there are millions and millions of people who are not seeking you. Billions of people. And so we pray for churches around your world who have proclaimed the Lord Jesus unashamedly this morning before we have. And we pray for those in the Western world who have yet to do that the Americas especially. Father, we pray, please, that you'll be working to ransom people, to rescue people, to draw people in, that the, the church would grow, that there would be problems with church uh, sizes, that the church hall, that the school hall, that the cafe, wherever people meet, would not be big enough because you would do something remarkable, that there would be a significant in-gathering around your world, in the Africas, in, the, in Asia, Father, have mercy on your world that's turned its back on you. 
that is seeking you in a host of different ways and that who is not giving you a second thought. Have mercy on them. Thank you that in sending your son, Lord Jesus, religion has come to an end and a living relationship, a covenant relationship is now possible. Thank you that you've done everything that we never could. Thank you that the cross remains offensive and also significant, offensive to our own efforts, but so significant and the only source of life to a lost world. Please, help us to be confident in that reality ourselves and help us to take that wonderful, remarkable, life-giving truth to our neighbours and to our friends, even in the week ahead. Father, help us, please, to grasp this lovely reality and true truth that you are a covenant God who's come to seek and to save that was lost. Amen.